This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 151 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Philip K. Dick's 1953 novelette, Second Variety, and its 1995 adaptation, Screamers. We're back with Philip K. Dick. This is our fourth adaptation from him that we're we're covering. Uh, This is a patron commissioned episode. Shout out to Stephen E. for, for commissioning this one. Uh, yeah, this was a this was a fun revisit to the '90s, the mid '90s. Yeah, definitely. It's weird. It's almost like Philip K. Dick is like a massive staple of sci-fi or something like that. It's weird <laughs> yeah. that we keep coming back to him. It's almost like a bunch of adaptations have been made off of his work. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we have a sort of a rocky history with him. I think like we've enjoyed a lot of his projects, but when it comes to his actual writing, I feel like we've been fairly mixed on it. Mm-hmm. Is that safe to say? Yeah, and I mean, I I think for the most part we've appreciated the adaptations of his work more than more than his original work in most cases i would say Mm -hmm. yeah i I think think. that's probably safe uh and today's where it all changes (laughs) at least for me um i I mean i won't get it i i guess i won't i won't necessarily say that i'm going to choose it because i'm going to save that for the very end but in at the very least i enjoyed this story more than i think anything else i've read from him um, I, you know, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep was, it was a cool novel and it has great parts. Um, there's definitely parts that were kind of a slog and I mm-hmm. kind of struggled to say it was, it was, um, a super compelling read for me. It was interesting, but I don't know. Um, but this short story I thought read like was really compelling. I, I enjoyed it. Um, it, a lot of the sort of staples of Philip K. Dick are in there. And I think this was early on in his career and shows uh, a lot of the things that he was going to continue to write about throughout his career was like in its early stages here. Just from what you said, I'm assuming this was written before Do Androids Dream? Well before, um, yeah. So that, you know, like you said, that kind of goes to inform his his stance on technology and what it would mean to be alive and sort of a lot of things that we explored with Blade Runner and Do Androids Dream. Um, and and we've I've definitely said this in the past, but Philip K. Dick's stories are such great jumping off points. Like we, a lot of the time, he sort of is creating this interesting world with some really interesting components, and then he presents a story to you, and he doesn't really give you the beginning, and he doesn't really give you like a, a super final, finite ending. Uh, he kind of just like gives you a snapshot of a story within these interesting worlds, and I think this is more of like a complete beginning middle end story for this here yeah i, I agree with that it, it definitely felt like a complete thought it, it it took the story to its logical conclusion uh had a twist had a couple of twists in there um it dealt with sort of secret identity are they aren't they questions that uh reminded me of like the thing um and you know obviously this story was written well before the movie the thing but it was following after um who goes there novella so uh it, it it falls in an interesting spot where it's like maybe this wasn't a completely new idea but like it's early enough on to where i feel like this was a very fresh kind of idea of having people be 
potentially uh, imposters and and uh, the the sort of paranoia that you would have from that. And, and I think that's on display in the story. And I love that stuff. I ate it up. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, like you said, the, it's very much reminded me of the thing sort of uh, not not really knowing who's who and, and exploring that. But then it also reminded me of what he would go on to do with with I, I know they're not called replicants in his story. They're just androids, I think. Um, but just the idea of replicants and like, um, you know, is this person speaking to you that's that's so human? Is I think that, they were is called it, Andes. If I'm Andes, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Well, Andrew, Andes like for androids as, as a yeah, as a shorthand for androids. Yeah. By the way, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep was 1968. So this was a full 15 years before he would write that novel. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. I can't help but feel like this maybe was influential. This story was also maybe influential to things like the Terminator that would come out in the '80s, and um, you know, a lot any any. I feel like any sort of robotic soldier army sort of uh, impersonating humans, it might be influenced from this. You know, I don't know how how fresh of an idea this was in 1956 or 50. I think pretty fresh, honestly. And and uh, it's funny that you should mention that. Um, there was an account that that tweeted at us. Um, I'm called SFF Audio. Um, don't know a lot about them. I think they have a blog, maybe a podcast too. Um, but they were saying that this uh, short story apparently is the uh, one of two short stories by Philip K. Dick that uh, actually served as the inspiration f- directly for the Terminator. Um, but apparently Harlan Ellison gets credited as being... Um, the inspiration for the Terminator. But apparently if you read the stories that are supposedly leading to this, like there's basically a, a you know, like it makes a lot more sense for this to be it. Um, there's another story called the skull. Um, and then there's this story. This story is basically the, the, the way that the future looks with the um, underground <laughs> factories producing these, these machines, which does is very reminiscent. Um, everything's post-apocalyptic. You know, the world's been wiped out. That's very reminiscent. And then apparently there's another story called The Skull, which is about a character having to travel back in time. Um, so it's like you take the those two Philip K. Dick stories, apparently, and you put them together and it looks a lot like The Terminator. But apparently yeah. this is not something that like James Cameron has said, although he has admitted to being a big fan of classic sci-fi of the era. So the possibility that he read these are are high. Yeah, you, I, don't, I don't think, especially at that time, you don't have to... You can have read a story... And have it inspire another story and not say like this is this is directly based off of and I feel like that's sort of what we're seeing there is very right. clearly inspire there's inspiration there there's um, ideas that were probably pulled in because it would be kind of sto- fun to read to read the skull and to read maybe the Harlan Ellison short stories. Um, that are referenced directly and then cover the Terminator and, and be able to discuss the, like what do we think was actually drawn yeah. on was any of it a direct or not because I haven't read that story so I don't know for sure you know right how it lines up I kind of am drawing connections through some of the sci-fi of the time and this is directly like related to movies I guess more specifically but um, the star of this movie is Peter Weller yeah and Peter Weller is Robocop he's also um, Buckaroo Banzai who you know? So he's like kind of a a big uh, '80s and, and '90s icon. Mm. Uh, the reason I bring the bring that up is Paul Verhoeven directed RoboCop, and then Paul Verhoeven also directed Total Recall. So that's another Philip K. Dick. That's how we can draw a connection through sort of Philip K. Dick, Paul Verhoeven, Peter Weller back into Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Um, well, and and I don't know if you saw also the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon. Um, was also the screenwriter for Total Recall, the screenwriter of this movie, Screamers. 
Um, not to mention uh, the original screenplay for Alien was what, how he kind of like cut his teeth in the industry. Um, so there's a, a lot of interesting connections here, like convergences of things. Um, and then and then you get this movie, mid-90s, um, right. which I, do we want to talk a little bit about how we felt about it? Or do we just want to completely save that for when we get there and just focus on the short story for now? Yeah, I think let's save that for when we're sort of more in the movie stuff. But I, I also wanted to just mention that um, it's interesting to see this movie in conversation with other Philip K. Dick ap- adaptations that came before it. You know what I mean? So yeah. we're seeing we're seeing this movie in a post Blade Runner world and stuff, and and it's just funny to see post like, Total how Recall. Philip- I think you know you get the same screenwriter who I, I think is referencing his own work in, in Total Recall in some ways. Just focusing in on the short story, it was first published in a magazine called Space Science Fiction in May of 1953, and. Uh, I don't know about you, but like this was all very clearly a Cold War era anxieties about, or maybe even this, I guess, would have been coming kind of pre-Cold War in 1953. This was like right after World War II, so not long after the the bombs were dropped um, in Japan. Um, it was very like nuclear war anxiety to me was like right. what was like permeated every ounce of this story. It's like communism, the Red Scare, you have people being blacklisted in Hollywood yeah. and things like that, all kinds of stuff leading up to the Cold War. For sure. I mean, it's Soviet Union versus U.S. is, is, is directly right. who, who the two opposing sides are here. And um, it's it's set on Earth, which has been destroyed by nuclear war. And then now, um, well, it's like nuclear war slash these these robots, I guess. And then, um, yeah, you got all these all these robots that they kind of lurk in the ground and, and leap mm-hmm. out and chop you up. They're called claws i think in the short story and yeah, um so. they're they're quite violent and and uh bloody but uh it's it's interesting uh uh philip kiddick's writing style though because he like he's not a super detail oriented writer like i was always kind of amazed at how scant the details were for a lot of the things being described and he really relies a lot on dialogue in these stories he's seen as this person who comes up with all these high concepts and you know flying cars and 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 androids and you know in my own report like precogs and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and then at the same time within his stories it's sort of more background for the what's actually going on in the story and then he doesn't he doesn't do a ton to to i mean he he describes it but like you say he's not like the scene to scene interactions aren't like super detailed to where you're getting this like really intense visual at least for me i'm sort of like understanding what's happening with this within a scene but i'm not getting like sort of the beat by beat um that i've come maybe and maybe that's just a modern reader thing that i'm expecting more of that could be partly that it is very it is very conceptual because he doesn't get into the details a lot so he's like he doesn't get bogged down in the like how things work he doesn't really seem that interested in trying to describe like the mechanisms of anything this is not hard sci-fi um, he's like, hey, I'm just going to come up with these ideas and then we're just going to hand wave it. And, and some of it will be like, he'll reference like certain kind of sciencey terms that might apply and then just move on. And that's kind of how he rolls with it. And, and, and I guess it, it also kind of made it, it makes it a little more timeless in that sense, because mm-hmm. you're not tied to like things that we've sort of learned don't work by, by proposing like sort of theories about how this could actually happen. Um, right. for the most part, I mean, you get a little bit of that, but um let's so let's talk about what actually happens in this story right like we have this character hendrix who is out on patrol and there's a there's a there's a soviet uh soldier who comes gets chopped up uh by these claws turns out he has a message um wanting to have sort of a meeting he takes the message and he goes to have a meeting with the soviets 
and he encounters this little child with a teddy bear, uh, who we find out his name is David, and the child uh, is able to sort of tag along with him, and uh, he he promises to bring him along, and then they arrive at the Soviet base. the The child is shot and is revealed to be himself a a claw in disguise. Um, and then we find out that the most of the Soviets are dead, and there's only like three people left, um, uh, two men and a woman. He meets them and uh, finds out that they've been attacked by these like different varieties of machines that are impersonating people now. You got the the Davids, which are the the, the children. Then there's this uh, third type, which is uh, an, an injured soldier. And then there's this mysterious second type that the question becomes like, what is the second type? And that's kind of the open question. Um, how, how did all of this strike you? Cause we both read this before we saw the movie. Um, and you said, this is a movie you've never seen before. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I actually realized through the process of watching that, that I've only seen the opening scene of this movie. I saw the part where the guy got chopped up by the machines as a kid. Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. I think I stopped watching. I think I left the room or something because nothing else after this was familiar at all. <laughs> so I was right. still pretty like, blank slate coming into this for the most part. Um, how, how were all these twists and turns reading them for you? This is one of the more efficient stories that we've read from Philip K. Dick. Like I, yep. I don't think that it really got bogged down in sort of, I can remember specifically in, in do Android's dream. There's like sort of the, uh, this scene of like interacting with the radio and the way that the radio can give you yeah. like certain feelings and things like that. And like, I think that's cool and, and like conceptual, but it doesn't really, like, it's not that engaging. Whereas I think dialing in this story, your emotions in, you know, and, and it, there was a scene that I think that followed that where he was like logging into this virtual reality religion thing that mm-hmm. I think it was one of the areas that really got bogged down in early. Right. Early and so like that, the, and, and I didn't really have many moments of that with this, with this no. short story, uh, novelette here. It's, it, were you, did you see some of the twists coming or, or did you feel like you were just along for the ride or like, did you know that the, the, the child was going to be a machine? Did you see that coming? I feel like I, yeah, I, I mean, I think I knew basically right away that the child was a machine. Um, I didn't, the, the twists and turns as we get further, once, once the person was killed and it, they were, they were alive, they were actually human. I was like, okay, so either one or both of these people are robots as well because it just well you're on the lookout for the second variety right like it's it's been lampshaded it's like there's a second variety out there nobody knows what it is so yeah and after after that one dies and it's just um well let's name them i actually have their names here there's rudy klaus and tasso um and klaus kills rudy because he suspects that rudy is actually a um claw but come to find out rudy was a human and gets murdered by klaus Right, and so when uh, Tasso, it's it's the end when Hendrickson and Tasso are still to, they're still together. I'm like, there's no the most interesting version of this story is her being also a robot and like finding a way to to sort of continue on and and continue the species. And that's ended that I did see that one coming, but I would say the first time that somebody was killed, I didn't you know I thought that person was going to be a robot, and he turned out to be a real flesh and blood human and then i was like okay we're definitely one of these two people is going to be uh, a robot from there actually i think they both ended up being right because because uh yeah he he ends up being revealed as, as being a robot but then yeah this the, the 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 double twist is that tasso at the very end convinces um hendrix to let her be the sole um 
pilot of this ship to head back to Earth. And we've heard all along that like they're designed to like get into bases and like convince you. And so it's it's you know implied that this has all been a, a ruse to to be sent back to Earth. And I just gotta say. I just knew <laughs> there's no way Philip K. Dick is going to write a short story that has one female character and that one female character is not going to actually be a secret villain who is out to get the main protagonist man <laughs> because right, yeah. it seems to be consistent it, in pretty much everything he writes. <laughs> it's kind of his MO at this point. He's got like his, uh, he feels a certain way about his female characters and that's that yeah, they should they're be out to get him. antagonistic. <laughs> yeah. Antagonistic to say the least. Yeah, they're all they're all secretly out to get him too. It feels like it's weird. It's like they're right. you know what I mean like the the wife characters uh, always have like these ulterior motives, and um, that's you know literalized here in that they're secretly a machine. Um, you know, you, and you think back to um, we can we can remember it for you wholesale where his wife is this like double agent and all this stuff. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah, I mean consistent. And we've talked about it, I think, in past episodes. He's, he's the person who has been married like a bunch of times as well. So he's, you know, yeah. he's it's it's clear where where his uh, sort of he's got uh, some frame is coming from with this stuff. He's got some troubling baggage. views on women. I think <laughs> I think it's safe yeah. to say. Um, yeah. But you know, all of that being said, still like I kind of have to like know all of the other stuff about Philip K. Dick. Like if I just read this short story and never read anything else by him, you know what I mean? Maybe I wouldn't like recognize this as like a weird pattern. <laughs> um, yeah. There's, only, there's not very many characters, and most of them end up being robots, basically, in this. We never really go inside the original base to, like, see other human beings, whereas we do that in the film. So, like, there's really, this is a kind of a small story in scope as far as, like, number of characters we actually encounter. Um, and most of them end up being robots, it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, like, in the in the story, we kind of just pick up, and he's already on his journey and meets the David really, really yeah. early on. David is so obvious in his, like, robotness in, exactly. in this version. Like, he says, like, three lines over and over again. He doesn't want to eat any food. He says that, like, I don't need it. I survive other ways. And, like, he, like... He, he's, he's described as being pallid and like he, 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 to me it's so obvious but I'm always, I was trying to remember this was in the 50s and like maybe right. this kind of thing wouldn't have been obvious to readers then yeah. you know I mean I just to loop I guess to go back to the twists and turns and how where I where I landed on them once I knew once I knew David was on the table and like a speaking chi- a child robot I was like okay um, and then I, I realized like any character in the story going forward could potentially be a robot and I think I was looking out for it <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, also, by the way, this story, you can, you can read it for free. It's on Project Gutenberg, um, uh, you know, free to access if you're curious about it. I actually do encourage it, especially if you've never read a Philip K. Dick story. I think this is a good one to start with, to get a taste for, like, the sorts of things he likes to write about without maybe, like, the huge commitment of reading a whole novel. Um, and, okay. and it's compelling. You know, it's kind of military sci-fi, too, so it's exciting. There's, like, there's, co- there's a lot of fights going on, people blowing people up, shooting stuff. Um, right. You know, which is not always the case for his his stuff. So, if that sounds interesting to you, yeah, something that something that I did find to be interesting with the, uh, and, and you know, it's for the story that it is, it's kind of fun. But the idea that they couldn't create, you know, there's the different varieties of the robots, and like there's there's like a bunch of different Davids, there's a bunch of the wounded soldier. It's just funny that they couldn't create varieties within each version to like kind of differentiate them. I mean, that's that, that's like an obvious thing now, right? With like versions right. of, of that's obvious to us now. But in the fifties, I feel like that's probably not as obvious that that would be the case. Yeah, it's it's kind of kind of ridiculous that there's only four versions and that they're just like version one, version two, version three, version four. Uh, it's kind of silly. 
they're so varied in the versions. Like a child is much yeah. smaller, and then like a wounded soldier is a very specific. Well, version one so. is like a little fucking saw blade in the ground with claws, yeah. and then version yeah. two is a fully functioning human child with speech. <laughs> you know, so exactly. like, the difference between those two is just you know miles apart. Um, and if they had the technology to make that, you would think they would have the technology to create tons of different variations in between each each sort of stage. It, it, but I will say it does it does sort of. Um, lead itself to eventually this like, army of children is kind of creepy um so you know that it's got that going for it take me with you yeah um and, and, so a couple things that, that stand out too i really liked the repeated refrain they kept having of the hendrix was like we created these things it wasn't a mm-hmm. soviets you know what i mean I think it, it, that, that contextualizes the story in an interesting way the you the you know america created these these robots and now they're turning on us and and um, the excuse for it, he says, like, I wish we'd never created them. And then, like other characters say to him, you know, if we hadn't done it, they would have. And I feel like this is like the big argument behind the nu- the nuclear bomb. Right. That we all, that was always said, it's like, if we don't do it, they're going to do it. And, um, and and that may be true. But I think you also are like following that line of logic of like, well, anything is permitted if you're going to follow that line of like any sort of dastardly just like uh, weapon of mass destruction, world ending thing you can you can. uh excuse your creation of it but you can say well someone else is going to create it first if we didn't i mean and it's a way of making your fel- making yourself and 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 specifically society feel better about the whole thing right they're like well yeah. we ha- we had to we had no other choice if they didn't if it wasn't if it wasn't them it was us and that sort of thing it's like a way for people to try to sleep at night um, yeah. where obviously it's a horrific thing that's going on and uh yeah i guess this is kind of in conversation with like what you know, if it wasn't a nuclear bomb and it was these crazy creatures, um, what sort of we have coming to us, you know what I mean? That's sort of that, that like what you reap what you sow kind of thing. Like what, because you made the atomic bomb, like what's the repercussions of that in the future? Yeah. So there is some early also discussions of like the robots, the claws here, um, becoming sort of the next step in evolution and becoming the new dominant species. And mm-hmm. then that's sort of discussed early on. And then at the end, it seems to be implied that like that is true because this Tasso character has gotten onto the thing and he only realizes he basically finds a a uh, tag or something. I forget what it is, but it, he finds a label on the corpse of uh, the other character who was killed, who turned out being a robot. And he, he finds out that that was version four, which then leads him to go, oh, there's a second version I still haven't seen. And then I think two Tassos come walking out of the bunker or something like next to each other. And then he realizes, oh, shit, Tasso is, is actually the second variety, which is the, the, you know, the name of the story. So um, that's the big reveal. And then I liked that the way it ended, um, which is uh, he, he sort of is like looking up at it and realizing that um, he's basically <laughs> led to the destruction of Earth. But his sort of final thought uh, about it is they were already beginning to design weapons to use against each other. Um, yeah. So he sort of. Well, it was uh, specifically the grenade, right? She had like a grenade on her hip that was specifically made to destroy yeah. like this the certain generation. That's right. Yeah. It was a search. Yeah. They had already developed a bomb that was designed to destroy other claws, and so he sort of is. It's like this, like grim. I guess sort of like a grim irony that they have inherited this this uh, thing from humanity. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's implying that all life is this way, but that they are they're finding a ways to kill each other. And this is, which is, I guess, sort of implying that um, even they are doomed to one day destroy themselves. 
Right. And th- there's conversations that happen throughout where it's like are someone asks, like, are they alive or not? And he's like, you know, what does that matter? Do, what does that mean? Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I, it just goes to show, like, the, I think the, the whole message of the story with that being the ending there would probably be like that he feels life is always in conflict and that like this conflict would continue, whether it's humans or like you said, any other. That's just like the the sort of reverberation, I guess, of life, like like no matter what what form life takes on like conflict will always be a part of it and then and then obviously you put that at the start of his career with with what would follow with blade runner with do android stream of electric sheep i should say um and and you see that this is something that he was continuously writing about and then i think is carried on into modern day like that is a question that is really big philosophical question in all of sci-fi that we continue to write about over and over again is like what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be conscious? Um, at what point are machines or artificial intelligences considered alive? And and um, how do you make that distinction? There's something about biology versus like electronics. Um, is there something inherent in there that defines what it means to be alive? Or is right. there not? Is are those distinctions meaningless? Yeah, like at what point does AI have rights? Like at what point is it living yeah. and and does it does it deserve the same rights as any other as any other living being? Um, so, I mean, if you think about that, seventy years ago, essentially, he was writing these, and and uh, that's still questions that are super important today, maybe more important than ever. So, um, really groundbreaking stuff. And specifically because it's not sci-fi anymore, right? Like I think a lot of the smartest people of our age are saying like this, this is a, something that we're going to have to confront at some point is AI is going to get to the point where it is, a, it is seemingly alive or there's some sort of situation where we could be overcome by AI or robotics or something like this. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's not science fiction anymore. And, and to have the foresight to know that that might be a potential problem in the 50s. Um, and yeah. to start well, I mean, and, and I think having the uh, machines being self-replicating and like designing new versions of themselves. Like this was very yeah. new. This I feel like this had to have been a very new idea oh. and very frightening to people who were just starting to think about this as a possibility. So I can imagine this was mind blowing stuff to read about. Um, but we got to move into this movie now. Uh, I'm really curious to know what, what you can tell me about it. Um, I saw somewhere that it's a Canadian film, which I thought was interesting because I feel like I don't, I don't personally think that uh, I hear about a lot of those in the States, maybe like smaller indie films or something, but I don't hear about a lot of like big, big budget Canadian films being made, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because like a lot of movies are filmed in Canada, like Vancouver is yeah. kind of a huge hub for, for film, but I do know that um, <laughs> like having it be a like purely Canadian film, I guess is kind of, you know, for, for as big as it seemingly was this movie, this movie, it might've been like sort of, um, an outlier because it's you know hollywood mm-hmm. seems to dominate a lot and then there's a lot of other international markets pe- people think of before they think of canada obviously um right. but this movie cost 20 and uh, reported or estimated 20 million dollars um to create and i was i was just curious because i was like i wonder like how this movie did so i looked at the box office and it seemingly only made six million dollars yeah, I was so, gonna say I don't think it did great. <laughs> pretty, pretty massive, massive flop. But it seems like were they were they relying on RoboCop success maybe a little bit and hoping that that you know our main character would would sort of pull in the the audience. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of that going on. There's you know I think there's a sort of 
what you see is trends, right? So, so a certain type of movie starts to become popular and you're seeing through the eighties and nineties, you're seeing a lot of sci-fi movies that, that have these pretty massive budgets. Um, and I, I think I can see a lot of the money being spent on the screen. Like I did, I was really interested and I thought a lot of the set design was, was really incredible. Like a lot of, Mm -hmm. um, interesting looking, you know, forward thinking future technology, uh, and like there wasn't a ton of stuff that looked like cardboard in the background or anything like that, you know, like I could yeah. tell that there was like professional set design going on and like a lot of it looked pretty solid. Yeah. Um, and then you get to the, the mid nineties graphics though. Right. Which, uh, ooh, a lot of those yeah. do not age well. I, I'm sure they were cutting edge at the time. Although I will say this movie came out after Jurassic Park. So right. let's remember that. <laughs> right. Uh, some of the stuff did not look great. Steven Spielberg directing versus Christian Dwyer, who directed this movie. Um, so I think that's probably part of it as well. It's sort of like sure. the access to technology. Do I, do I know that filmmaker from anything else? So before Screamers, he was sort of known for television. He worked on um, William Tell. He worked on Deadly Nightmares, um, some 90s TV shows. He also directed Scanners 2, so the sequel to Scanners, um, and also Scanners 3. Uh, and then he went on to direct Screamers in 1995. And then I feel like the movie you'd be most familiar with is The Art of War with Wesley Snipes. Came out in like mm. 2000. Sounds familiar, but I don't remember. Maybe I've seen okay. it. I don't know. Was it like a spy thriller type movie? You know, I haven't seen it, but I think you're right from from the synopsis that I was reading. Okay. I think it's sort of like covert ops. I might have seen it then. He's also known as an assistant director. So he sort of worked as an assistant director and and a director around this around this time period through the 90s and 2000s um he was on he worked on human trafficking in 2005 the art of war like we talked about and a bag of marvels in 2017 which i haven't seen but i mean that's pretty recent so he you know he directed screamers in 95 and he's still been working pretty consistently since so that's all you can really ask for right is to to continue to work yeah but nothing else that i hear is like oh you know he's so it seems like he hasn't maybe done a lot of feature films that that um most people wouldn't know of, I guess. I um, mean, I wonder if this is sort of seen as a uh, one of the reasons why. Maybe this flopping. I don't know. Maybe because I know sometimes Maybe. you can get labeled right as certain certain ways in, in in the industry. Yeah, it definitely seems like he directed a lot of TV after directing Screamers, and he stuck to sort of TV series since. There's been a couple of movies here and there, but yeah, like you say, I think you know who knows. Maybe Screamers had something to do with it. Maybe he just enjoyed TV more. But yeah, he hasn't directed like a ton of movies that I think that are like household names or anything like that. I want to know general thoughts. What do you what did you think of this movie? To be honest, like I, I I didn't hate it, but I wasn't like enthralled the entire time or anything like that. It was definitely a funny, like sort of snapshot of the 90s. It felt like um, it felt like being in the 90s. I actually read that um, Peter Weller during shootout scenes, he would be listening to Soundgarden to drown out the, the sounds of of, uh, you know, the gunfire and everything like that. And I was like, that's like one of the most 90s sentences I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, so. I mean, yeah, I think it was fun. Like you say, some of the effects don't hold up very well. Uh, it's it's just like sort of a sci-fi action movie, H- heavy on the action. Um, some of the some of the dialogue is like very cr- cringy. Some of the stuff that goes on is, is a little cringy. But I mean, ultimately, I had fun with it. Like the the machines are interesting, and I guess Peter Weller uh, gives an interesting performance. They were trying to definitely lean into the RoboCop stuff. They very much wanted to try to replicate something that. I guess sort of seemed like uh, an action movie similar to RoboCop, but without the social commentary. Yeah, they wanted 
Peter Sellers to be the Arnold Schwarzenegger of this movie, the the Sylvester Stallone, the big action star draw of this yeah. movie. And it's kind of a weird fit, in my opinion. Um, and he he is this sort of macho, I don't know, he's such a 90s protagonist, you know? Yeah. Like, he, he, he um, he's like, when we first meet him, he's talking about Caesar and how he was the last great emperor of the civilized world. And he's kind of this, like, power mad <laughs> like I, I don't know it felt like he was like really having a power trip over the people in the the first base and i thought he was going to be the villain of the movie at first the way he was set up with like sort of the eyeglass and everything like he's like leaning yeah. in his chair like that's a villain like introduction guy? that's a villain introduction yeah. if i've ever seen one yeah like you were supposed to like his friend but he wasn't likable at all and and the way that he sort of um bullies the the new re- recruit guy who shows up yeah, um, I mean, it's like a hard-nosed sort of army guy, and I think that that's exactly. what they're going for. Uh, it's just a weird character for me uh, today, looking back, but but the, it did feel very 90s. Like, this was the kind of extreme, you know, hyper-masculine leads that we, you, were, you were seeing all over the place. And it felt somewhat in keeping with that, but um, it never felt like, to me, they did enough to provide an emotional core for the character that made me care about him. Um, they they reference a few times like a woman back home and like, is he going to reach out to her? And he says, no, why would I? And it's like, oh, we're supposed to feel bad for him for being kind of alone out here. And then he's talking about like reminiscing about when he used to watch women's volley- volleyball be played with his friend. <laughs> and yeah. it, that was a weird note that came out of nowhere. And um, it was supposed to be this like tender moment between the two of them who had had a fairly antagonistic relationship up till then i will say in that scene he in like no doubt about it there's like tons of misogyny and like weird stuff with women in this movie but in that scene he said like he specifically was the one who was talking about whale watching on earth and then the other the other guy was the one who was like and the volleyball am i right and it was sort of like one of those but then he agrees he's like yeah you're right right. yeah so i don't know i don't know i didn't know what to make of it i guess we're supposed to think of him yeah like you said like like this that, that bar scene like i was like i was like this scene on on paper was insert scene of emotional you know emotional yeah. motivation in some way where they they like miss earth and they they yeah. do have something besides just like the action army soldier sort of archetype thing going on so we should say like uh the plot of this is a little different i'm sure i think you had some stuff you were going to read to sort of outline some of the differences but um I, I guess i was trying to set all that up to to lead to my overall general thought which was this was a movie <laughs> that's kind of where right. it came out like i didn't hate it Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a bad movie, although it certainly has bad parts. Um, it also has some good parts. It also has some entertaining parts at the very least. So it's, it's, it's a movie. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it to anyone. I probably wouldn't. Um, but it was fine. And, um, I've seen some people saying that it is a very, it's one of the best Philip K. Dick adaptations. And the reason being because it's faithful, which I thought was funny because it, it's uh, it's tying back to the discussion we just had on our 150th episode uh, r- retrospective where we talked about how there's these like camps of people with adaptations of like what makes a good adaptation. Is it a qu- good film or is it is it being faithful to the material? And a lot of people seem to fall in that faithful to the material camp. And because of that, right. you have this weird situation where people are like praising this movie and saying like, oh, this is one of the best Philip K. Dick adaptations, only because it's faithful for the most right. part, although it does change stuff. Not because it is 
a good movie. Like there's way right. better movies that have been adapted from his stuff. So it feels weird to me to put this above certain things, you know, like, yeah, I mean, like everything else said, we've covered, I would say all the other Philip K. Dick adaptations we've covered better, mo- better movies by far. better movies. Yeah, uh, that's it. We talked about it in that 150 episode. But basically, if you read the book first, you're attached to those characters, you're attached to the sequence of events, you're attached to the author and the way that things went down. So that's what you want to see on screen in in yep. some cases. And I think those the camp of people who are to the extreme, like every detail needs to be the same. This is the pitfall of that, right? Like this is like if you say like it has if it's if it's perfectly adapted, it's just that every sequence of events plays out almost exactly the same. And yeah, th- th- but like you have to talk about tone and setting and like how, how, you know, the performances and things like that, because realistically, like this movie is like pretty cornball at sometimes, you know, yeah. like, like, I think I think like a lot of like 13 year olds love this movie in like 1995, yes. you know, like, absolutely. <laughs> that is a perfect audience. So, yeah, like it's that's a that's a certain type of movie that's being 13 made year old sure. white 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 guys yeah you yeah, <laughs> <course>. should say <laughs> you know i think adaptation like we've said is is kind of more than just the 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 plot you know yeah well we had a pretty good in-depth discussion of that in that last episode on the feed so definitely check that out if you're curious but uh let's move into what actually goes down in this movie because despite all of that it actually does change quite a bit um yeah but but i think it's like it's by comparison to a lot of other philip k dick adaptations that are just like a whiff of the original and then we're gonna go completely different place um this is fairly faithful it's still just fairly though it's not direct by any stretch yeah. So in the year 2078, the planet Sirius 6B, once a thriving mining hub, has been reduced to a toxic wasteland by a war between the mining colonies known as the New Economic Block, NEB, and the Alliance, a group of former mining and science personnel. After miners discovered that their extraction of ore released toxic gases, they went on strike and the mining company hired mercenaries as strike breakers. Five years into the war, Alliance scientists created and developed Autonomous Mobile Swords, AMS, artificially intelligent self-replicating machines that hunt down and kill NEB soldiers on their own. They are nicknamed Screamers because of the high-pitched noise they emit as they attack. Screamers track targets by their heartbeats, so Alliance soldiers wear tabs, which broadcast a signal canceling out the wearer's heartbeat and rendering them invisible to the machines. Alliance, The Alliance recovers a message from a dead Neb soldier, guaranteeing safe passage through Neb territory to, to, to discuss a truce. When Alliance commanding officer Joe Hendrickson reports this development to his Earth-based supervisors, he is told that peace negotiations are already underway on Earth, but Private Ace Jefferson, newly arrived from Earth, says this is untrue. Hendrickson is not surprised. He has long suspected that both sides have simply written off Sirius 6B and abandon their armies. Yeah, so that's the intro to this movie. That's the setup, right? Um, I, I, yeah, we've already talked a little bit about Hendrick, but let's talk about Ace. This guy is like he's a weird character. Like I, Very I couldn't weird. get a I couldn't get a like tab on him. He's supposed to be this kind of like new recruit who's come in and he's supposed to be kind of a hot shot. He's like right. this like really highly rated marksman and all this stuff, but then like he doesn't seem like that at all. He seems like a goober. At he's best. like a, he's like bumbling around and like he's annoying for sure. Um, yeah. And he, but yeah, he seems like the first scene we meet him and he seems fairly serious. Like he doesn't seem like this character at all. And then yeah. for the rest of the movie, he's like sort of bumbling car- uh, comedic relief. And he's like scared of everything all the time. Yeah, yeah. like and, and he's supposed to like have some sort of connection with Hendrickson. <laughs> um, some sort of emotional connection, but I, I never really felt yeah. that between them. Like, I don't see why they ever felt anything about each other. I don't know. The emotional notes all over this film feel off to me. Um, it was a lot of like, 
paint by numbers. Like he's he's uh, he's this other character and this character, and they're close together, so they must like each other, right? Like you're gonna yeah. go, you're gonna roll with that, even if we don't display that on screen. So honestly, I think the only reason that this character exists is they didn't trust one character to carry the scenes basically between the, each base. Like they just kind of didn't trust themselves within the movie or the audience to go along with it. Like they didn't think it would be interesting enough. So they wanted to have somebody for him to have a conversation with and that kind of stuff before he meets David and before they get to the Neb base. Yeah. And to dump exposition on, there's a sort of a walk and talk scene that they were about to get into where he describes a lot of what's going on to him as someone who doesn't know anything. Um, yeah, but I mean, the character is sort of, they try and make him into a Swiss army knife character to fill all these different roles. Like he's a vehicle for exposition. He has important information about what's actually going on. He's kind of a goober. He's also kind of a badass. And like all of these things come together and fit this weird into a weird position. Also, he's an emotional connection for uh, Hendrix to have. But then he's also a comedic relief sort of character who's supposed to be uh, someone that the uh, audience can latch on to. And I would argue he fails in almost all of these uh, roles because he's trying to do all of them and they don't really line up in in one character. Like, that can't be one person. They can't really do all of that. Or he fails to do it, at least. Yeah, he's like this weird, like, Robin to Peter Peter uh, Weller's Batman in this yeah. sense, but like a bad Robin that does it that's, like, kind of, like, not funny, even though yeah. he's supposed to be and like... Um, and then, like, he's, like, kind of a badass. Well, he's supposed to be, like, a six-level sniper or whatever they're talking about, like, marksman. Yeah, we never uh, see that, yeah. by the way. He never right. is, like, a sniper of anything. In, in yeah. <laughs> anyway. It's just a way of saying he's capable, but yeah. Um, so, Hendrickson sets out for a meeting with Neb Commander, accompanied by Jefferson. While traveling through a destroyed city, they come upon a war orphan, a young boy named David, clutching a teddy bear. Unwilling to abandon a defenseless civilian, they bring the boy along. The following night, they are attacked by a reptilian screamer that they have never in- before encountered. Hendrickson is alarmed that their alliance tabs did not protect them. As the group nears the Neb compound, two enemy soldiers, Becker and Ross, open fire on David, whose chest explodes in a shower of gears, bolts, and wires. They explain to the Astonished Alliance men that David was a new Type 3 Screamer impersonating a human. Most of the Neb contingent has been wiped out by another David Screamer that a patrol unwittingly brought back into the base. Becker, Ross, and a black marketeer named Jessica are the only survivors. So yeah, there's the scene where they're sort of like trying to get some rest and and um, Jefferson's not wearing his tab and this reptilian Instead thing. wearing VR porn. VR porn, yeah. Psych, like psychedelic tunnel with nude women dancing in yeah. it. Goggles, I guess. Yeah, they couldn't decide if it was going to be like a porn thing or if it was going to be like a psychedelic like drug tr- drug trip type thing. And they were yeah. like, this is what porn looks like in the future. It's everything. It's both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then he destroys it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that it was interesting to have like a sort of another form of these creatures because then that that leads to another variety and you know the fact that the short story is called second variety kind of you know makes it it important for each iteration and to have this sort of new reptilian i don't even know that it's reptilian but the description calls it that it's sort of like animal i would just say i don't know like Mm -hmm. rodent almost yeah i had like a long tail so i guess it kind of looked reptilian um, yeah, it's, it's the early indication that things are evolving. We get a similar scene where the uh, Nebs shoot the David and the revelation that David has been a, a screamer all along. Um, and then, yeah, this this Becker character 
um, who's this like he has tattoos on his face and he's kind of a hard ass and he's got those like 90s sunglasses on and uh, he, he starts to do some interesting stuff where he's like walking out on he's like walks on this beam um and he mm-hmm. he's got this knife that he's always sharpening and he's always messing with this other character who's got the broken glasses yeah yeah a lot of spitting and licking and like the he's extreme so yeah. it's like we know that there's a the weird continuity error i don't know if you noticed where he like holds the door open for them to go down the ladder and then uh they go down the ladder and he's the last to go down and then we cut to them arriving at the bottom and he lands on the ground and he's the first one there and then they follow him <laughs> down and i'm like what? No, I didn't notice that. That's <laughs> funny. Very weird continuity. Well, on the, on the ladder, he's so extreme, he let go and then latched back onto the bottom, them. past everybody, and then latched <laughs> back on, so he's the first one. <laughs> very bizarre. Yeah, but this character, I mean, I, I don't know if it was the actor's like, choices being made, if it was direction, what it was. This character is off the wall, like to the point that it's like, he's weird to to an extreme to where it's like off-putting. I know maybe they're trying to like sow the seeds of like, is this person some kind of weird robot? But at the same time, this character is just like a like a clown. This yeah, is a clown. well, and he's quoting Shakespeare like repeatedly was, yeah. was the thing, you know, and I don't know. I found him kind of compelling in a weird way just because he was so unexpected and he was like a character is I guess the one thing I'll give him. He was like consistent in the, the way he behaved. He felt like he, he was like a real character, I guess is the only way to describe it. Like he, internally consistent. The way he interacted with people was consistent. Um and yeah, I mean, it was obvious they were trying to make you, th- it was like, the, is he, isn't he? They were trying to make you think he was a screamer. And then I think uh, there's a couple of moments where they're trying to sort of steer you away from that. I did keep, ha- and this is a question I had in the short story too. As soon as they found out that David was a machine, there should have been a blood test because yeah, these right? machines don't Something have blood like in them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's changed. That changes later on here. Um, and then I like that, that it, he does eventually do that. Um, we'll get to later. But um, I, I was like from the jump. As soon as I found this out, I'm like all of us right now. Blood test. Are are you blood or are you gears? We're going to find out right now. Yeah. Because like when they were like when they're having all these questions about are they, you know, who, are they or aren't they? Um, it felt like a pr- there was a pretty easy solution to all of that. <laughs> so it right. felt like kind of a plot hole to me. Yeah. The. uh get off my back, man, get off my back, man. That guy like repeating it and that being the reason I thought like I understood why that person was killed more in the movie because it was like, at least there was a reason. Whereas I felt like, I don't think we get a reason in the short story. It's kind of just like, yeah, he seems suspicious. Yeah. I heard him, I heard him clicking or whirring. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like almost creepier. It's like, I heard whirring and that's why I'm going to do it. Right. Um, and then it's like, was it your mind playing tricks on you? Cause you're trying yeah. to hear that and you're paranoid and that kind but of, both, but both, both times it does end up being that they're, they're both robots. Once again, like, uh, you know, all these characters are robots other than the one guy who gets killed. So right. that, that is consistent with the short story. And I was just thinking, like, I guess I understand why that character was so scared and everything now. You know, like, of course, yeah. because, like, he doesn't know who to trust. He doesn't know anything. It, it's interesting that uh, the robots kill, like, like, kind of use him in the plan, whereas I feel like they couldn't have planned to have a human actually come on board with them. You know, he was part of the plan to prove, like, we're not robots. Let's kill. Well, no, I mean, maybe if if we're thinking like three dimensional chess here, because they sent the original guy to to ask them to come and do the sort of peace treaty meeting. Right. And he was a legit guy. And they were already robots at that point. So they are already planning to sort of ingratiate themselves and get. I think the whole plan was to get back to Earth, you know, from from the mining planet. And this was a long con, I think. 
Although it did seem like the two weren't necessarily working together, you know? It, it never yeah. really seemed like they were working together. It seemed like they were kind of working independently of one another. Yeah. I'm assuming they're aware that they're robots, right? Like they they have yeah. to be. Like they don't they're not under the assumption that they're human, right? Yeah. But uh let's talk about this uh, you said her na- her name's Jessica in this? Yes. Let's talk about this character because oh boy, uh the the introduction of her is so weird and then she's like immediately like ooh i'm a sexy woman and then all the guys are like ooh and then like peter sellers is giving her eyes and then they go into another area and she starts like undressing in front of him mm-hmm. and scrubbing herself um because that's a normal thing for a person to do um i guess if you view it through the lens of like she's a robot trying to seduce him or something maybe but like god it was just weird and then like the idea that he is going to be so taken with her that he's like instantly fallen in love with her. Well, I just was like, he, he said like, you're so God, you're so beautiful or something like that. And I was like, yuck. I was like, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> like the scenario at all. Like that's just, it's just yuck, man. Like, it's yeah, just, I don't know. Choose a better time and place. Like, I don't know. It's just it was. Yeah, exactly. It's scene. like in this situation, this is what you're going to do. It made no sense. Right. Um, and it felt very shoehorned. Oh, we got we got the first significant female character, so she has got to be sexy. She's got to be the love interest. Um, and you know, here we go. So yeah, I mean, it, it leans right into that, and then we we go down that ro- road. I did think it was funny she had the real scotch. I don't know if you right. were able to identify it. I, I thought was it Johnny Walker Red? It Johnny Walker Red Label, which yeah, I have heard that Johnny Walker Red used to be better. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe in the mid '90s, it was it was a higher quality, uh, you know, spirit. But uh, nowadays, not really considered uh, something to be, you know, bragging right. about. You're busting out your Johnny Walker Red Label. What do you think the MSRP is on a bottle of that? If I went to the store right now, I don't know, twenty, thirty bucks at most. Okay, so yeah, yeah, it's not the greatest scotch. I guess it is. Is it a blend? Yeah, it's a blend. All yeah. Johnny Walkers are a blend. But I mean, it's just funny. I was like, okay, yeah. you know, Johnny Walker Red. I guess it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. <laughs> I guess that's the that's the point, attitude. right? In the apocalypse, you can't be cheesy. Yeah. About they're all chugging and... off the bottle anyway. They're not, they're not really appreciating it, uh, which is <laughs> yeah. that's such a movie like movie thing. Of it's like people who don't really understand scotch but want their characters to be badass alphas, so they're all gonna just drink right off the bottle. Yeah. Uh, anyway not the point um, not the point oh i did want to talk uh, i want it felt like this is one of those movies that was like funded by the t- like big tobacco i don't know if it actually was <laughs> but it felt like it because they breathe these red cigarettes to like clear radiation out of their lungs so people are constantly smoking in this movie like you know what i mean it's like one of those like the the biggest sort of uh, films that's been guilty of this like uh, making it seem cool to smoke, right? Like so many of those 13-year-old boys that we were talking about who watched this movie probably grew up thinking like, how cool would it be to be smoking all the time? Yeah. Can't wait until I can or I'm going to go do it now. I'm going to go find a way to get my hand on some cigarettes. Yeah. And as much as like I hate cigarettes, I do s- still think it's cool to smoke in movies. Not, not that I thought <laughs> it was cool in this movie, but like there are times that somebody's smoking in a movie and I'm like, it's a character trait that like I respect if like people putting it in there sometimes but the fact that everyone's smoking in this is excessive yeah um, but sometimes like there's there there'll be like it's a character trait and you're like oh that's a cool interesting yeah. thing and like you're like this person clearly doesn't care about their like long-term health and that can be yes. sort of a that and that's sort of be a, that's the way i think it can work like it, it can be a signifier that a character is doesn't care about their welfare they don't care about their well-being they don't they don't have maybe they're like sort of stuck in the present they don't really have a, a mind for the future right. um but what was weird about the smoking in this movie was that it was trying to recontextualize it as being healthy 
Yeah. It was the thing that fought the radiation. Yeah. And, that's pretty uh, funny. you know, it's kind of weird because it's like that is almost like encouraging you to smoke because it's don't believe the lies. This is actually good for you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading too Very much cr- into it, but it was weird. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. It's pretty funny, though. The red cigarettes also look pretty funny. So in the next part of the plot here, the group heads to the Neb Command Center, but finds only an empty building and large pools of blood. Locating the mainframe computer, Hendrickson learns that the Neb truce offer was just as false as the Alliance message from Earth. The group retreats to the Neb bunker, pursued by Davids. The discovery that the Screamers have evolved new versions on their own and are indistinguishable from humans and immune to Alliance tabs leads to paranoia and distrust. Becker becomes convinced that Ross is a Screamer and kills him, only to discover that he was human. The three survivors retreat to the Alliance base, only to find that the Davids have gained entrance to to that compound as well, with equally devastating results. As dozens of Davids pour out of the bunker's entrance, Hendrickson fires a micro-nuclear missile into the bunker. Jefferson rushes to the aid of Becker, who was apparently injured in the blast, but Becker's cries of distress are a ruse. He is a Type 2 screamer, and he kills Jefferson. After Hendrickson destroys Becker, only he and Jessica remain. Okay, yeah, covering a lot of the ground there. So going back to that, going to the Neb Command Center, um, I thought the whole sequence was, was kind of bizarre when Hendrix tells them all to leave and then is at the mainframe for a while, sort of like punching in stuff, learning about things, and then the Davids are slowly walking up, and then he shoots one. Um, But during that whole time, the rest of them are all running like their fucking pants are on fire, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing around. Right. They're running like they are being chased by raptors in fucking Jurassic Park. Like, that's how they're running, and there's something right about to eat them. They're tripping over each other. They're fucking falling. They're... It's it's and it's in the the music is like oh this is a super intense scene but we see nothing we see there's no, no chase yeah there's no chase they're just slamming into things and like falling over and and then um, and then it's countercut with this like calm Peter Sellers calmly scrolling down and looking at it, Peter Weller Peter Weller who's Peter Sellers yeah. Peter Sellers is from uh, Doctor Strangelove okay I feel like I've said Peter Sellers sometimes in this episode so I apologize oh, okay. if I have I, I maybe I haven't but maybe I, I feel like I have anyway it's just a weird sequence it's like again it's like it, the movie it doesn't quite hit the notes right to me it's like it, it's it's confused I mean I think it's a want to action it up you yep. know it's like we got to make this more exciting it's got to be more exciting put a put a chase scene in here and like make it make it crazy but at the same time like yeah he has to be getting information so it's funny that you brought up jurassic park and the raptors because like when he was like crouching next to that thing i kind of thought of like the kitchen scene from jurassic park where like the they're like the kids are hiding around objects from the raptors as they're like sniffing around and everything yeah um obviously not as good as that scene because that scene's amazing i kept thinking like why don't they just shoot it they've shown that they can shoot this thing and it'll die in one shot and so they're, they're sitting there like just trying to be quiet and then all of a sudden it it, it lunges and then they shoot it and it's like why didn't you just do that from the beginning it it was unnecessary tension just for tension sake i guess yeah but uh yeah how about that so the reveal that that uh, becker has been a a, you know a screamer all along um and then he he's like quoting shakespeare to him and and i kept expecting that at some point we get some sort of explanation for how he's doing that um, I guess he found some sort of material that they were able to read and just like learn the lines maybe, or maybe the guy whose face he was wearing. Cause he, he says later something about like, I, you know, I was wearing this guy's face. So maybe that guy knew Shakespeare lines and like somehow they were able to absorb that from like eating his body or something. I yeah. don't know. It just doesn't fit like Shakespeare in a movie like this doesn't fit, but I get what like is trying to be said is like this idea of like art being such a human thing. And then the robots being able to like interpret 
art. You know what I mean? So like yeah. a robot saying Shakespeare lines is like inherently human. It's a humanizing thing. Like it's a art is human. And so I get what they were trying to do with like robot, human, art, that kind of thing. But it just felt like it didn't fit. Still. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I see what they're trying to do, but it, weird. Um, but that does bring me to the next moment that, uh, man, again, just kind of bizarre. Hendrix grabs uh, Jessica's hand, slashes it open, sees blood, and is like so relieved. And he's going to slash his own. But she says, I don't need to. And then they kiss. And it is a weird smush your face together kiss that Long has like too. no chemistry at all. It yeah. felt it felt bizarre. And then it goes on for a long time. I also was thinking about the fact that they're next to their dead friend and oh, a dead yeah. robot and carnage. And like, I get that, like, they're overcome with emotion, but it's, I, and I think it's implied that they have sex there. Oh, I, I didn't get that. I didn't get sex. No, I, I, maybe. I mean, I Later at the end of the, at the end of the movie, she's like, I'm, we're capable, of, like one of the, one of the other type twos shows up and is like, we're capable of love and this and sex or fucking No, she or says we like can that. fuck too. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, is that referencing that they had had sex? I, I didn't I, catch that, but maybe that makes that even weirder if that's true. Um, yeah. But regardless, yeah, I, I like I thought the more appropriate note is because I, I could buy that maybe he kisses her there, but it should have been like a like a brief kiss in which he and which she like pulls back and is like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> like it comes yeah. out of nowhere and she should have been like, what did you just do? And then well, he should have been like, oh, sorry, I was just caught yeah. up in the moment. And then we move on. And then maybe you're starting to build a relationship. But like they had not earned that kiss at all at that point. Um, yeah. it, and then from that point on, they're like head over heels in love with each other. Yeah. Um, well, so. I mean, he saw her naked, so that's like that's like marriage in <laughs> yeah. in outer space, I think, right? In the sci-fi universe, it's so. it's wild. Like I uh, I definitely agree. It wasn't it wasn't earned, and it felt like it was out of nowhere for the sake yeah. of you know thirteen year old and, boys and and kind of a just a bizarre kiss too. Like I'm I'm t- I'm telling you, it was one of the like least chemistry kisses I've seen on a screen. Um, and it felt like he was smashing his face into her. Well, he like slid his face across her face till her lips met. And so like his face was like all being dragged across her face. And it was like, it looked weird on camera too. So it's like just, yeah, overall weird kiss scene. Bizarre. Anyway, let's move on. Final, final, give me the final bit of summary here. Now paranoid, Hendrickson worries that Jessica could be a screamer as well. He slashes her hand and is relieved to see blood dripping from the from the wound. They locate an emergency escape shuttle and begin prepping it for launch, only for Becker, who is repaired and has taken Joe's friend's face to attack. In the struggle, Joe manages to finally kill Becker by throwing him into a plasma laser that's part of the shield's grid for the escape shuttle. With the shuttle now prepped, they discover it can carry only one person. Hendrickson offers the shuttle to Jessica, but a second Jessica arrives, confirming that she is a screamer after all. And even more human-like, Hendrickson resigns himself to death. But to his surprise, Jessica shields him, then sacrifices herself in battle with her lookalike. Joe then kills the lookalike with the shuttle's ignition test. With her last breath, Jessica confesses her love for Hendrickson. Hendrickson departs for Earth on the escape shuttle with a single souvenir, the teddy bear carried by the original David. As the screen fades to black, the bear slowly begins to move on its own. (laughs) Oh, man. So we get like three four more twists here at the end uh it's it's starting to get kind of ridiculous but yeah here we go um becker's back he's now wearing a new face but somehow the tattoo of the like little tears have has like transferred to the friend's face um which i guess is an indication that it's the same same screamer i don't know how any of it works 
Uh, I, this whole final scene, like most of it is added on. Um, you know, there is a shuttle that they leave in the, in the original Philip K. Dick story. That's basically it. But, but I really liked the way that that ended with her getting in the ship and then leaving and then him realizing after the fact, like, oh shit, I just sent that to earth. Um, like, I think that's a cool way to end a sci-fi story like that. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we have this whole like weird fight at the end. And I think, you know, again, for action's sake, it's like the final confrontation. They wanted a big fight. But like her fighting herself was, yeah, her fighting herself, Jessica fighting herself was weird. Uh, She touched the laser like multiple times and that other guy just barely touched the laser and he like completely, yeah, evaporates and she touched it multiple times. Both of the, both of the Jessica's. Why is there a big laser of doom being reflected off of mirrors and like in multiple positions around this thing? Yeah. I I didn't get it. Me either. I didn't really follow, honestly, but it happened. And, uh. There were and, plasma and, oh, lasers. That's not how electricity works. Also, <laughs> um, there's like an open wire. Oh, yeah. It should have shocked the shocked the hell out of him. It's fucking bouncing against the metal that they're all holding on to the whole for a long time, not right. affecting them. Then he grabs it and shoves it into the to the uh, machine that he is holding him, and he somehow fries that machine. Yeah, it was the, the knife first. that was like in the, in in the chest, and then he put the cable onto the knife. Yeah, and somehow he is shielded from being electrocuted from this thing. I, I mean, maybe there's like a rubber skin or something. I don't no. know. They, I think they were visually trying to say like, look, it's a complete circuit from the, from the, uh, from the knife to the head and then back to the knife in like this weird oh, really? circle. <laughs> okay. I thought that that's visually what they were trying to say, but that's not how that works that's at all. He would be completely works. electrocuted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we get the, the revelation that there is multiple Jessica's, uh, she comes in and yeah, but I thought bizarrely says we can fuck, which I was like, okay, wh- why are you why are you saying that? We bleed and we can fuck. It's uh, the okay, naughty okay. f word that thirteen year olds like to hear. Yeah, I guess. So um, and then they moment. have this fight, and I thought for sure we were gonna get a like, which one is it? Which one isn't it? Because he has this moment where he can't choose who to shoot, and then um, then one Jessica throws the other, um, and get who gets like messed up by the laser, right? Um, or something I can't remember, but but like wins the fight, and then he immediately shoots that one because it screams, or does it scream after he shoots it? I felt like he just shot it and then it started screaming. So so well, I don't know how he knew that the bad one won. I yeah, I'm not sure. I thought that I thought that the way it went down was like the bad one won, and then like walked up to him and like was saying some shit about how like they were gonna do something, and then he like hit the ignition, and then it Chris it like. Like I think the, he had already shot her at that point, though, is the thing. Because I think he shoots her and then she, like, throws him or something. Um, yeah, so, I don't know. I just he followed. Was like, he was able to visually, he was like, I'm going to watch which one's good and which one's <laughs> yeah. bad. It was like a whole, like, magic trick where he, like, yeah. followed with his it, eyes. It, it felt like they were setting up the, like, you know, shoot that one. No, shoot that one. It felt like they were setting up that scene and they just never did it. Yeah. Um, and then, and then yeah, he he roasts her, the, the bad one. And then, I guess... <laughs> The line that just it I I couldn't believe they wrote this line, but uh, she literally says, "I learned to love." <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, fucking gold. Peter Weller, fucking Hendrickson taught this machine how to love because of his just un- irresistible sex appeal. I guess. Yeah. Well, that kiss, like it's undeniable. <laughs> yeah. I get it couldn't believe it um it, just this one one machine i guess learned to love and then so it's like a good machine now and then he feels bad right about having to uh leave her but then he does 
Um, so, so I actually found out that Hendrix- Hendrickson's fate is revealed in the sequel, Screamers, The Hunting, from 2009. What? There's so a- <laughs> there's, a, there's a sequel where, where you find out his fate after leaving Sirius 6 or whatever the hell it was and and uh, goes back to Earth. Oh, boy. We're going to have to watch this now as a bonus episode, aren't we? We might have to. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I actually read that there is a sequel uh, that Philip K. Dick wrote that is or a, a short story that's considered a sequel. Interesting. So maybe we maybe we do both or something if if that's yeah. the case. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously it's a good idea to take the teddy bear along, right? I mean, yeah. just that one thing that the David was carrying. I mean, you not take I, that with you. Yeah, not every single David had a teddy bear, did they? <laughs> oh yeah, wait, they totally fucking did. So why yeah. the fuck would you assume that it was fine to take it? It's so dumb. It's crazy. Yeah. There's so many things that don't make any sense in this movie. Like if you start looking for plot holes, they're just gaping and they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, which like we I've talked about how like that's not everything to me. That's not what can yeah. make a movie bad. But if there's enough of them, it can just start to feel like well, they were getting lazy. If I thought the movie was great besides the plot holes, that would be a different. It'd be a totally different experience. You know, that's yeah. not the that's not the main thing. Um, but yeah, I mean the the teddy bear thing was so it was laugh. I laughed like yeah. for sure, but. Um, I just really felt like the more compelling ending was, um, what was her name in the in the story? It wasn't Je- Jessica. Uh, Tasso. Tasso. Tasso making it onto the ship and then be saying, "I'm gonna bring yeah. back help, stay right here," and leaving is more compelling because then he realizes, "Oh shit, what have I sent?" I've been of, had again. I yeah. guess I guess the thing here is like they wanted to leave the door open for Peter Weller to come back and you know in a sequel or whatever. Maybe it's also like um, I think. I think the story ending is grimmer. It's it's sort of a because like that whole story, like the Earth itself has already been destroyed, right? And now we're fighting in the ruins of Earth, whereas here Earth still exists. So in in a way, it's it's like, I, and I really like the setting of of like a devastated Earth too, because it's like more present. Like we understand what it yeah. would be like because we live on Earth. Yeah, it's it's and to me, it's like something about this was trying to not be so grim. Um, even though it ends up being a pretty grand movie regardless, but like it was trying not to be. And so I think by changing the ending, they were also trying to be like, we're going to wink and nod about like, oh, maybe humanity is going to be destroyed. Whereas in the, in the uh, short story, it's the moon, the moon base that's going to be killed now, which is like the last place of like earth command. And it almost feels like it's kind of like getting what's coming to it because earth has sort of like humanity has doomed itself already. Right. So yeah. um, it, it's it's a very bleak ending to an already bleak story, I guess. Whereas here they tried, they're trying, I think, to be a little bit less bleak while still being sort of that like it lives horror ending of having the teddy bear move. Right. I think audiences that liked this movie didn't want to see the main protagonist die. Also, that like too, yeah, or be bested, like right. you know, completely bested. Um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, the movie itself. Now that we're at the end, let's just talk about it in general. It, it, like I said at the start, it's a movie. Um, it has parts that are entertaining. Um, young Luke was very um, like I always remembered that scene of that guy getting his limbs chopped off. I remember it being graphic and shocking, and like that stuck with me throughout my life. So like I, the graphics don't hold up at all and look like trash now, but at the time they looked like cutting edge graphics a little bit. So especially for a young audience. I, I was, I wasn't able, like it didn't take me out of it. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, um, I mean, like, I don't know. Like I said, I think I understand why people like this when it came out. And I yeah. think I understand that the audience that did like it. So like, you know, that's always going to be there. So for people who liked it as a kid, they'll probably continue to feel a certain way about it. 
and then coming to it fresh was just like it, it, like I don't have any nostalgia for it, so it just feels like I have to take it at face value. Yeah, and um, yeah, okay. I, I like I feel like there are <laughs> like I, there are things that I'll remember about it, and like in every scenario, I always look at the silver lining when I watch a movie of like I'm glad I've seen it. I learned things from it, regardless of if it was good or bad. Things yeah. that I liked, things that I didn't. So it's cool to have to have seen it at this point, and like right. you know, I didn't I didn't like the movies is is basically my <laughs> encapsulation of it. So so real quick, let's let's take a let's take a stand. We are voting on this year on which is better, book or film, and I think it's pretty obvious for me. I liked this novelette more than I liked the movie. I actually might be my favorite Philip K. Dick thing I've read so far. I thought it was compelling. Um, so to me, if you're curious about the story, read the short story. And then if you're really curious, you can check out the movie, but it's kind of unnecessary. I think the short story is where it's at. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. There's there's like a couple things here and there. Peter Weller, Robocop, getting to see him in like an action role, sort of like leading man thing is cool again, mm-hmm. like to see that uh, very 90s snapshot. Just thinking of him watching or listening to Soundgarden on set kind of makes me laugh. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it is like a sort of times capsule. It's interesting to go back and look at and see like, you know, what was, you know, a typical action flick? What was it like for women characters? And you just go watch this movie and you're like, interesting. <laughs> yeah, not okay, great. <laughs> that's, that's what it was like. Um, yeah. But ultimately, like, yeah, I, there there are things that I'll remember. Um, but I'm taking I'm taking the short story. It was just yeah. as like a lot of other Philip K. Dick stories. I feel like it's it's got a lot of good jumping off points for an adaptation. But at the same time, like I've said, I think this one, this one was propelled a lot a lot more. The, the engine behind it was a lot more efficient yeah. um, than some it's, of the other ones we read. It's weird, too, because like this is the most faithful adaptation of Philip K. Dick we've seen. Yet mm-hmm. this is the first time, in my opinion, that we're, we are in agreement that the story is better than the adaptation that was made. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. that, doesn't that say something? I don't know. It's I weird. mean, it's just funny. It's it, over time. It's funny to get this like scattered plot, um, you know, graphing system that we're going to have where we're going to think of like, you know, adaptations, uh, their source material and think of like which one we thought was better and then which one, um, you know, how how someone who just like is of the opinion that adaptations have to be exactly the same as their source material, how that might differ from from their opinion. So, yeah, you know, it's well, all and, adding and we nev- to this. We never our- officially weighed in on whether or not we thought Blade Runner was better, but I think both of us are in the camp of the film yeah. was better than the book. I mean, um, I think if you dig into the context of what we say in a lot of our episodes before this year, you can tell which ones we like more usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but we never out and out said it. So yeah. now that we're starting to say it, we're yeah. kind of getting those data points, which I think some like Philip K. Dick purists out there would probably be mad about that. We might hear about it. <laughs> um, I think a lot, Maybe, you know, cause but like Blade Runner, 19- I don't know. I, I would, I would definitely like st- st- hold my ground easily with, with Blade Runner. That one's like not a, <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah. 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 But I think a lot of people just really, really love do Android's dream of electric sheep and, ta- you know, it's touted as one of the best sci-fi novels. So especially if yeah. you're like a huge Philip K. Dick fan. So, right. Um, Anyway, that's where we're at with this one. Uh, Stick around to the very end of the episode where we're going to announce our next project. Um, But if you liked this episode, if you enjoyed our discussion and uh, talking about this like movie that not a lot of people are probably talking about these days, uh, leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Help us get the word out. Be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film and join our Council of Inklings on Facebook. We post polls, adaptation news, all kinds of stuff in there. It's just a good way to stay connected. 
Yeah, and this was a Patreon commission from Stephen E., so thank you again to him for uh, continuing to support our podcast monetarily, and if you would like to do that as well, go to patreon.com slash inktofilm. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, time to announce our next project, and this is one that I'm actually really, really excited about. It's kind of a, uh, we've kind of done a pivot here, and we've decided we're going to cover it because I recently discovered that it's actually based off a novel, but the new Charlie Kaufman Netflix film coming out, I'm thinking of ending things. It's funny enough, a few weeks ago, I was sending you this trailer going like, how cool does this look? Like, we both are big fans of Charlie Kaufman, and I had no inkling that it was based off of a book. And then as soon as I found that out, I got really excited because we're going to cover it now. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. excited. Any like, Anything that Charlie Kaufman thought was interesting enough to, you know, make adapt into a film, I'm definitely interested to see what that's like. And then super interested to see what he brings to the to the Netflix you know, inventory of movies at this point. Yeah. Um, it, the trailer's weird and I like it. So yeah, <laughs> it's I'm weird. Check it out. If, especially if you're a, a fan of like adaptation or uh, being John Malkovich or any of his other, you know, famous movies, like check out this trailer. It looks cool. And we are going to be covering, I'm thinking of ending things by Ian Reed, the novel uh, as our next project. So I'm excited to get into that. Uh, but until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.